Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, he comes bearing his own lanyard. Do you know that, Lisa? Joel Levington is our expert when it comes to all things having to do with credit. He is our senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And I mention his lanyard because mm-hmm. it references a company called American Axle and Manufacturing. And that leads us into automobiles. And we want to talk about the Ford Motor Company. Joel, this is a company whose stock has fallen more than 30% so far this year. They have more than $80 billion in debt. It has a market cap of $33 billion. How do you balance that elephant on top of the peanut without crushing the peanut? <laughs> well, I, I am a man with, uh, with, with a lanyard. Um, but I would, <laughs> but I would say that the debt is mostly at the finance company. Uh, the debt at the manufacturing company is about sixteen billion dollars. So I guess it's about a two to one ratio in terms of market cap to the debt. So there's a little bit more room than uh, than the eighty billion would imply. So does that room mean that the dividend at Ford is safe because they can afford to keep paying about fifteen cents per quarter per share? I don't think so. And it, the reason that I don't think so is because it's run, the dividend is running about 120, uh, 125% of free cash flow. And if you look at what the Raiders focus on, which is liquidity, uh, you can't spend uh, more than you make uh, without bumping into your liquidity. So at some point that becomes an issue and the company desperately wants to hold and retain its investment grade ratings, which will require it at some point either to improve its profitability or to you know, take an action on its dividend. All right, so just taking a step back, I mean, Ford is investment grade rated, but barely. In the bond market, it is being treated basically as junk, right? I mean, I'm looking right now at its bonds that are maturing in 2026. It was trading above par earlier this year at 104 cents the dollar. Mm-hmm. It's currently trading at less than 90 cents in the dollar. This is a, a huge move in the bond market. If you see a, f- a 14, 15% decline in, in a bunch of months when the company is not going under is is pretty significant, no? What is that telling you? Yeah, the, the, the bonds uh, have been crushed. Uh, CDS has doubled on the company. Uh, earnings expectations at the beginning of the year were about $13 million worth of EBITDA. It's about $10 billion today. So it, the, the, the fact that you're seeing that in the bond market is a reflection of the weakness of the business performance. And that's going to continue, Lisa, for several more quarters. So how much does it pressure them that their borrowing costs are rising so rapidly uh, at a time when they need cheap financing to try to dig themselves out of this hole? Oh, it's a it's a big issue for the finance company, and it's one of the reasons why they really have to retain investment grade readings as a mechanism to reduce the lower. You know, or is that to, plausible? I think it is plausible, uh, and, and and in fact, um, you know, we wrote a note on it uh, today because S and P had a uh, a closed door meeting for investors on Friday uh, morning, uh, where they basically laid out a plan where they were saying. You know, uh, they could reduce uh, Ford's ratings by a notch 
but not junk, but not cut it into junk. So at some point, it's going to look like an it looks like an ugly duckling today, but this thing is going to look like a golden goose not that far away, and that's what we've been writing about as well. Doesn't it all come down to whether they can sell more automobiles? Really, they can sell more F one hundred and fifty pickup trucks. Well, it's selling more profitably as well. Like they, you don't have to sell more product. In fact, they might consider the opposite of getting of divesting. F one fifty is very very profitable business for them. North America is a very profitable business, but the rest of the world for them, Asia, the Middle East, and Africa, Europe, is money losing. And so sometimes it's addition by subtraction as how the math people work it. And you, if you get rid of the... <laughs> addition by subtraction, that's good. If, yeah. you, if you get rid of the, of the painful parts of that business, uh, it makes the overall Ford a stronger company. Joel, uh, we'll have to have you back and talk more about this because that's a bold call, uh, basically, that this could be a real buying opportunity, essentially, if Ford does retain its investment grade ratings. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Joel Levington, Senior Credit Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, talking about the auto sector. And I will just give him a shout out that he nailed that auto parts or auto auto suppliers, bonds of those companies would not do well this year, and they have absolutely been crushed. So he uh, is somebody to listen to also with Tesla. I'm, I'm pressed by Joel's calls. We're getting a lot of predictions about what will happen in the wake of the midterm elections that are coming up in the next two weeks. Uh, Goldman Sachs coming out this morning and saying that equity volatility may rise if Democrats take the House. Let's hear what Michael Zizis has to say. Michael Zizis is head of U.S. Pub- public policy and municipal credit strategy at Morgan Stanley. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. First of all, what do you think is the most likely outcome from the midterm elections and how should markets be positioning? Well, I mean, we're we're really just following the polls and the models here, and it tells you that over the last few weeks, anyway, the the base case is becoming more and more likely. The base case being that the Democrats get uh, get control of the House, but the Republicans kind of hold serve in the Senate, and it, obviously, there's a pretty substantial structural advantage the Republicans have in the Senate this time around because they're only defending nine seats. The Democrats are defending 26 seats, uh, and 10 of them are in red states. Uh, and, and what's happened is this kind of divergence in the polls over the last few weeks where uh, the Democrats are doing better in the House and worse in those kind of red Senate seats that they're competing in. So, you know, what does the base case get you? Um, I think it really just kind of gets you, uh, at least for the next couple of years, the existing policy set that we have on board uh, more or less frozen, right? So uh, fiscal policy doesn't necessarily get any better or worse, right? You don't get more tax cuts or any tax rollback. Uh, and trade policy is still kind of an independent variable. There's no sort of obvious uh, reaction to the idea that a change in Congress means that uh, the president is any less likely to continue to put uh, a lot of pressure on China and escalate that situation further. Uh, you know, we think we're going to uh, get to a place relatively early next year. Uh, we're probably going to be tariffing everything that we uh, that we import from China. So. Um, the most likely outcome, I think, is that the existing policy set that you have right now is going to continue. The more interesting divergences are if the Democrats somehow win the Senate uh, or if the Republicans somehow uh, holds, uh, hold their advantage in the House. Well, let's just stay with the consensus for just a second, Michael, and just give us your thoughts on a couple of key equity sectors such as pharmaceuticals, telecom, as well as healthcare care services. What do you think if the 
Democrats are able to take the House, what will happen to those sectors? Yes. So th- those are the most outcome sensitive sectors, less because uh, it's less about whether or not the Democrats can get the House. And it's more about whether or not they can get the Senate in addition to the House, because the reason those are the sensitive sectors is because um, those are the sectors that have benefited the most from uh, regulatory rollback. So it's any outcome that tells you that that regulatory rollback is less likely or could go in the other direction that's going to be that's going to make them underperformers uh, or vice versa. So if the Democrats get the Senate, it's not that they're going to be able to force the executive branch to change direction on the regulatory rollbacks that they've initiated, but it tells you something given those barriers, how hard it would be to take the Senate. It tells you something about how progressive-minded the electorate has become. I think the market would start thinking ahead to 2020 and what a possible uh, Democratic control of both the, of the White House and both houses of Congress would mean for those sectors. Yeah. Um, con- conversely, if the Republicans are able to keep the House, uh, you know, that tells you that the electorate's not in a mood to deliver um, over the next few years the kind of, uh, uh, you know, the kind of legislative backdrop that would push back on the regulatory rollback that's helped those sectors. Michael, how much do you believe the polls? I think the polls are, are, are fine. Uh, you know, we get this question all the time. I, I think the problem is not with the polls. The problem is sometimes with uh, how, uh, you know, not just investors, but all of us understand the probabilities implied by those polls, right? So if you think back to 2016, um, there, there weren't really polling errors at play. Um, you know, the national, uh, I think the national polling average lead for Clinton going into the election night was about four percentage points with a kind of plus or minus three on each side. And she won the popular vote by about two percent, I believe. So, well, uh, and if you, if you look at most states, that's, everything was more or less within the margin of error. So the, again, it's the probabilities implied by that, which is to say that, Going into election night, you should have, uh, you know, you shouldn't have thought of Clinton as more than a roughly seventy percent chance of winning, and anything that has a thirty percent chance of uh, happening, uh, in this case, in that case, the Trump presidency, it shouldn't be that surprising. Thirty percent events happen quite frequently. I guess that there's a question that I have, which is, is there some sentiment or some population that isn't being picked up in the polls uh, or where polls, you know, aren't necessarily, I don't know, representing the zeitgeist in the way that perhaps people would like to. I mean, a surprise, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm just trying to figure out where the disconnect uh, came from people's confidence versus what's been happening in elections. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's, you know, it, the, the the recent history up to 2016 would suggest that or, or sort of would make people feel that a three or four percentage point lead in polls should be pretty solid. And in fact, if you think back to 2012, uh, the polling error uh, actually went in favor of Barack Obama versus Mitt Romney. And so and he was the leader going in. So I think some of this is recency bias where investors perceive a polling lead as insurmountable, even if it's relatively small. And so what I would recommend is yet you should have appropriate um, you know, respect for you know, a, a small single-digit lead suggests that there's a meaningful probability that the outcome is different than the poll lead, right? And so for, for this particular election, you know, the base case that we described at the top of this talk you know, it probably is not, no more than a 60 or 65% probability outcome. 
that tells you that it's almost a toss-up that something different, either the Democrats get control of both houses or the Republicans hold on to control, uh, is something you really have to seriously consider. That's almost a 40% chance that one of those two things will happen. And the markets move in very different directions based on that, which is, you know, why in our last note, we said we think equity volatility is very cheap. We got to run, but we're sorry. Thanks very much, Michael Zizis. He is the chief U.S. policy and municipal strategist for Morgan Stanley. We're going to focus on a story that is interesting from so many angles. It talks about how Blackstone managed to get a $20 billion commitment from Saudi Arabia's uh, main fund for its infrastructure fund. And it talks about the fee structure, which was very beneficial, and some other perks And this comes at a time when U.S.-Saudi relationships has been strained significantly. Let's bring in the author of this story, Jillian Tan, senior reporter for Bloomberg News. Jillian, can you first explain exactly what Blackstone promised Saudi Arabia in order to get their money? Sure. I guess at the very heart of the story and the, the main point that is surprising to a lot of folks today is that Blackstone agreed a deal where for every dollar that any other investor, for example, Pennsylvania teachers or Texas teachers or whoever it may be that pays a management fee to Blackstone, for every dollar that one other investor pays, Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund gets to pay 15 cents less. So it's essentially structured as a revenue sharing agreement. It's offset as a 15% discount to the fees that they would pay very clearly in our story, we have a chart that sort of illustrates exactly how that money is taken off uh, PIF's commitment. So just in other words, Saudi Arabia not only is being offered lower fees, but in order to offset its fees, some of the fees that other investors, including pensions and others in the United States that are investing in this fund, the fees that they pay are funneled to Saudi Arabia. Essentially, yes. But I guess the word funneled is a little bit touchy, but it's yeah, it's offset against the fees that Saudi Arabia would pay. So hypothetically, Blackstone could write a 15% check, but that's unnecessary given that Saudis owe them so much in fees anyway. So it just comes off their fee total. Are other investors, when they were being pitched this fund, were they given the same deal or were they at least alerted to what they would be buying into in terms of how that would change the relationship financially between Saudi Arabian investment and the fund? Okay, on the first point, um, all other investors were not offered the same term. So based on public filings, we can see that, for example, the biggest investor that's not the Saudi fund is uh, Pennsylvania Teachers Fund, and they are paying 75 basis points for the first two years, and that quickly jumps to 90 basis points after that. The Saudi fund gets to pay 75 basis points on the first 10 billion and then 65 basis points after that. So that's just the very basic fact. Is that unusual? That bit's less unusual because, you know, it's such a big commitment. Blackstone points out it's, I think, the biggest commitment in their history, maybe 10 times the size of any other commitment. What is unusual is the revenue sharing that comes after that. So it's an additional concession where 15% of what any other investor is paying Blackstone then comes off the Saudi fees. 
Okay, so this is an this comes at an interesting time. I imagine you would have written this story even if Saudi Arabia and the U.S. weren't engaged in a, a sort of tense situation right now. But it's complicated by this fact that Saudi Arabia, which has a lot of money that it wants to invest, is now sort of being accused of some pretty substantial human rights violations and clamping down on the freedom of press and it sort of caused some executives to back away. So has there been any kind of rethink? Is there an ability to rethink on Blackstone's part? How does that kind of come into this? So my understanding is that all the investors that are already committed, including PIF um, and the US pensions that are already locked in, they've signed pretty tight agreements. But I think this more impacts the investors that Blackstone's out speaking to today or, you know, this week, this month, this year, next year. Um, I think they're raising right until next March. And I think that's when the fund will close for a little while and then they'll invest that money. But the interesting thing will be if other pensions sort of feel uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, every dollar of their management fees is, you know, 15% of that will offset the Saudis. And if you think about the broad sort of political context, you know, investing alongside the Saudis is very fraught in itself right now. Because you have a situation where the Saudi Arabian government is being accused of killing the journalist Jamal Khashoggi in their consulate in Istanbul. Correct. So if that's the case and investors other than the Saudis are getting a less virtuous deal, then isn't there a way for them to say to the people running the fund, we want the same deal as the Saudis, and if we can't get the same deal as the Saudis, we don't necessarily want to participate. Can I they pull out? I think the existing investors will have a hard time because um, just knowing how all these fee agreements or just general relationships agree- agreements are structured, they're pretty watertight. They probably won't be able to pull out, but it's more the ones that are prospective. They probably will look at that and they'll look at the current landscape. There's just so many other infrastructure funds being raised right now. Brookfield and GIP with massive funds of their own, Morgan Stanley, others, 3i. There's just a lot of options out there. And if you can cut a deal with a firm that's maybe not um, investing along or that where you would not be investing alongside the Saudis, maybe that's a better option for them. Do, do you do you see that the uh, board of directors of the pension funds, in this case, Pennsylvania, would they get involved at this nitty gritty level? And would the people who benefit from the pension fund, the pensioners, they're now going to learn about this in in equal investment opportunity? Yeah, so they've declined to comment to me. They only just got back to me this morning. For sure, their their pensioners can lobby them. I'm sure they'll hear from them. I think people might be a little bit upset, a little bit outraged. Um, but yeah, I, I think for the folks that are in, I don't know if they're stuck. I'm very interested in that. The other thing that I would just point out that we haven't talked about is the CFIUS um, I was going to get issues. there. That's yeah. what I think is really interesting as well. Yeah. So just in, in part of our reporting, we sort of learned a few things that PIF has some rights where they- Excuse, and Bla- PIF being the Saudi Arabian- uh, Fund. Yes, Carry it is the Saudi Arabian fund. Um, they and Blackstone sort of struck uh, a deal where Blackstone can, and PIF, sorry for keeping using PIF, but they can, in their best interests, encourage CFIUS not to require certain disclosures about folks on the on the Saudi board um, in deference to their royalty. And that's because Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman is on the PIF board. 
Wait, so in other words, basically, there is certain controls in place. There are certain controls in place where the Saudi Arabian fund can get involved in specific deals if they run amok of CFIUS, or they can be sort of a little bit more hands-on with certain investments. Uh, just, I wouldn't structure it just like that. It's more that they can uh, opt out or be excluded from deals where CFIUS might you know, throw a fit because it threatens national security, whether it's an airport, a port, or utilities. Incredible story. Thank you very much, Jillian Tan, for sharing it with us. You can follow Jillian on Twitter at Jillian Tan. That's all one word. And, uh, well, we'll have to see what happens with those other investors. They include the Teachers Retirement System of the state of Illinois, Teachers Retirement System of Texas, and the New Mexico State Investment Council, among other major investors in that fund that Blackstone launched for infrastructure, $20 billion. right now maybe a little early in the day for some but the topic is whiskey and joining us is the founding partner and managing director of glass revolution imports raj sabarawal he joins us now he's the founding partner raj thank you very much for being with us how did you come to create this company glass revolution imports why did you decide to do this uh pam first thanks for having me on this morning i appreciate it um, I was in the corporate world, got tired of working for big corporations, and decided to follow my passion and started the company in 2009. Uh, at that time, we had, were lucky enough to get access to Armroot Single Malt, which was the first single malt out of India to be exported. And we started with that brand, um, like I said, nine years ago. Uh, we've added several different brands now and are one of the leading importers of world whiskey into the U.S. So let's talk about how whiskey is taking off. I mean, I'm thinking about whiskey bars that are starting up in Brooklyn, and I feel like uh, that that hard drinks, in particular whiskey and bourbon, are kind of overtaking, in some places, even beer among millennials. What do you think is driving this? How, many, how much more can whiskey and bourbon kind of infiltrate the alcohol scene and uh, gain share here? Uh, that's a good question, Lisa. I, I think that obviously beer sales are declining and they're giving way to spirits. Spirits continue to uh, increase in sales. Uh, and I think that the consumers really are looking for different uniqueness. Um, you know, we can see that premium scotch sales are up slightly, uh, bourbon sales, as you mentioned, and world whiskey in general. I mean, I think led by the Japanese craze, um, and now that's being affected by both shortage is in Japanese whiskey availability and uh, increasing prices. So I think consumers are still appreciating brown spirits as a general category and spirits overall. Raj, uh, in addition to uh, Amrit whiskey that you import, you also have in your portfolio Blackadder whiskey, English whiskey, stalk and barrel whiskey. You also have gin. What does a company have to do in order to get Raj interested in importing it into the United States? Uh, great question. We, everything we bring in is either owned by a small family distillery or has some history in producing product. Uh, so we're dealing directly with the owners of the company and uh, the distillers. Um, you know, the gin you mentioned, that is from Spain. It's one of the oldest gins in the world goes back to 1750 that they've been producing it. This is Mahon. Mahon, correct. And so 
we're always looking for a unique story, uh, something that will have authenticity behind the brand and allow the brand to stand out. So, Raj, I, I have to ask, you know, we've been talking a lot about trade tensions and tariffs over the past few months. How has that impacted what you do, especially since some European countries have actually targeted whiskey uh, in, in, recent, uh, in recent months? Well, the, uh, the target by the European countries is primarily on American whiskey that is being exported to Europe. Uh, are basically as importers and the fact that we're bringing in product from uh, non-traditional markets, uh, we have not really been impacted by tariffs. However, we actually see uh, the ability to grow because as other products are targeted and the availability declines and the prices go up, uh, we're seeing a, a hole that we can fill with our brands. Raj, how important are these Whiskey Fest events? They take place all over the world. You had Whiskey Fest San Francisco at the beginning of the year. I believe you just had Spirits in the Sky in Brussels. You've got Whiskey Fest coming to New York in December. Are those big events for you? Do you really make a lot of business happen during those events? Uh, Tim, I think those are very important because, you know, when you have a product that's not familiar to consumers, uh, the only way to convince them and get them excited about it is getting them to try. Uh, so rather than them going into a retail store and paying, you know, $60, 80 $90, $100 for a bottle of whiskey, they can go to a show and try different products and therefore make their own decision whether or not they like it. Um, we found that education is a huge factor, and the more exposure we have to the consumer directly impacts our sales. Pam, what's your favorite drink? Well, it actually is water. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, come on. Sorry I'm to do about that to you, Raj. Drink. Oh, my gosh. But here's, here's a question for you, Raj. Are you scheduled to go to the Whiskey Extravaganza in, in Washington? That's on the 25th of this month. Uh, I have I a feeling a lot of lawmakers could use a lot of help. <laughs> no, I will be there, definitely. I'm uh, not only exhibiting, but also will be leading a master class on the effect of wood on aging whiskey. So we're going to taste six different whiskeys all aged in different barrels to uh, highlight what factors wood has on aging the whiskey. Raj, what's your favorite whiskey? <laughs> Lisa, that depends on the time of day, who I'm with, and what I'm doing. Uh, 8 a.m. on a Monday? Yeah. <laughs> you have, a, have to have a breakfast whiskey. So Armored Single Malt, which is a lighter whiskey, more uh, Fruit notes and floral, uh, it makes a great breakfast whiskey. Love it. This like is, that. You're Bref speaking my language. Breakfast whiskey, that's a new Love one. Love it. Raj Sabarwal, thank you so much for joining us. Raj Sabarwal is founding partner and managing director at Glass Revolution Imports, uh, based in Pittsburgh. Water, Pim Fox, come on. Sorry. You know, honestly, it's. I actually just polled my husband. I asked him what his favorite liquor and? was. It's bourbon. He's, oh. he's more of a bourbon person because okay. it's not as sweet. He I likes see. it, although whiskey isn't really either. And it's good standalone, too. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.